Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Hello, uh, my name is Amin Tazi. I direct the Middle East Studies at the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, Quantico, Virginia. Uh, it is a privilege and for me a pleasure to introduce Ms. Natalia Kominyuk, a Ukrainian journalist and author. She is a founder of the Public Interest Journalism Lab, which promotes constructive discussion around complex social topics. From 2015 to 2020, she headed the independent Ukrainian broadcaster Formatsky TV in the English language Formatsky International Project. I could say that uh, the tables were turned in that day because uh, Natalia actually interviewed me in Odessa, Ukraine, uh, and now I have, I'm sitting on this side of the table. Uh, Natalia specializes in reporting foreign affairs and conflicts. Her recent book, The Lost Island, Tales from Occupied Crimea, came out in 2020, features her six-year reporting from Russian annexed Crimea. Again, thank you very much for, for uh, taking the time and, and being with us. Uh, I know it's a, it's a, for you, uh, this is a very tough time. Uh, again, I want to personalize it. Uh, when you and I talked first time in Turkey and then in Ukraine, uh, I told you tales of my life when I was about 15 that going through the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan at the time. Uh, this is way more horrible than that even in the first day. So I, I, I feel for you, for your country, I say this in a personal capacity, uh, you as a friend, other Ukrainian friends, but I'm also at awe as the rest of the world are at your steadfastness, your your bravery in the face of absolute brutality that we never thought we would see, uh, not just in Europe. Everybody looks at Europe it's about humanity. This is this is uh, this is unbelievable. So so I salute you as a human being and as a person who believes in democracy and, and fairness and human rights and dignity and sovereignty. Uh, with that, uh, could you please? Uh, First and foremost, I know you've been traveling uh, around Ukraine. Could you give us a, a very brief snapshot of how do you see the situation from a military perspective? I know you specialize in mm -hmm. that. Also from a, a societal perspective, from Ukrainian societal perspective. If you just give us a very brief background. Yeah. Uh, it's it tried to be brief, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. So I think, uh, you know, maybe, um, so the country, as many people would understand, but still, I guess a lot of people do not really understand that Ukraine is the largest country in Europe, like from geographically. So it's smaller than Russia, but the scale is still big. Uh, what is also important that uh, what we feel now that more whole country is targeted. Of course, the Russian advance with ground troops, uh, it's strong in the south, in the east and in the north with Belarus trying also to using, use the, the Belarusian territory is used as a play, playground. So advance is very big and uh, it's more or less about every bigger town in the areas I've just described. But also there are airstrikes and the airstrikes are everywhere. And for the people who understand it, uh, you know, like also understand that Russia has the, all the Soviet maps uh, and, 
Ukraine uh, was a very important uh, part of the Soviet Union. So the military facilities are more or less everywhere in the country, also in the east, on the west as well. So that could be a Kazern, a garrison, a military, uh, you know, college or some places for the uh, warehouse. It could be elsewhere in the smaller towns. We never cared. And the airstrikes were there. They're not very precise, though. So it's often, and I've seen it with my eyes, so often those bombs are falling just on the residential areas. Uh, and we're not speaking about some secret places. We're speaking about, you know, military college. So military college is not hit in a town A, but the civilian house is hit. So somehow it feels very much insecure for more or less anybody. Uh, to be honest, after the months of the Ukrainian society adjusted to this, you know, like like we have, for instance, a very fast developed air air raid application for every tiny town where you kind of know what's happening. Uh, you know, like so, so country is quite you know re uh, re reacting very fast. Uh, but that is the point. I still want to probably go on with the military strategy, which is um, which is probably would describe and would lead to further discussion. So I think we we know you know very well. The initial idea was to uh, overtake the country very fast. Uh, and I don't think it's just because the Russian military are bad. I think that they are also under resistance. So at, when they understood they cannot overtake the big towns, and when they understood they cannot capture the citizens of the town and hold them, by the way, it won't happen like that. They just shelling the rest they can and the, the most unfortunate situation we probably would need to talk earlier what's happening in mariupol a very quite a large town where there are still 300 uh 350 people under the constant shelling and there are a lot of attacks on the civilian infrastructure that's something to discuss separately you know uh from the point of view of the ukrainian society i've never seen the ukrainian society as resilient strong uh, organized. Um, I think that there is an incredible political unity. Uh, Ukraine has a very partisan politics prior to this, uh, but it's all on the level between parties, between different like ethnic groups, uh, between people of political views, but also if you speak about hierarchy. So I traveled to quite a small towns and the regional capitals, uh, the support to the uh, president, but the president looked like a persona but really to somebody who is leading Ukraine in this conflict is incredibly, incredibly strong. Uh, but also it's at the same time, very decentralized country. So in every village or town, the governor or mayor also takes care. And those people were elected, you know, like for to run still, I'm speaking for instance, the provincial mayors, a peaceful provincial towns, but now they are very much determined to, you know, take care that the water supply is there, electricity is there under very risky circumstances. So this determination is uh, there, and the further east, you know, let's say paradoxically, the more, you know, there were, there are a lot of towns where Russian, due to historical reason, is their first language for a lot of people. So the more proximity, it happened that the, Russia is attacking the towns which are the most 
uh, close to Russia geographically, with the people who have kind of more family connections to Russia, they are affected the most, and those people are the most determined to oppose because they are the first victims of this war. So that's probably the setting I want to uh, uh, want to have. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, if I may, kind of take it one more step as what what you just said at the end is absolutely. I think uh, Putin wanted uh, maybe three, four days. He thought he would take over Ukraine and then uh, have a fair complete his hand. And one thing he was counting from what assessments in the in the open media we see is that what he considers to be the Russian sympathizers or Russian speakers will will kind of rally with him. I know you have covered. Uh, both the Donbass, but also you have done a book on, on uh, with the occupied Crimea. What you know, in cities that have more Russian speakers, and you say they have familiar ties. Do you see any any tendency of of uh, not resisting as much, or they are the same as the rest of Ukrainian society? Thank you. Uh, so they do resist more, first of all, and I would explain it. What is very important to understand that the Russian government and Putin himself for years and years and years, he kind of miscalculated any time they want to deal with Ukraine. He just doesn't understand the concept of democracy and that this is a society. And what is happening in Ukraine is the will of the Ukrainian people. We do have democratic elections. We do have different political parties. So if it's me on something, uh, it's not the chaos, it's a normal democracy. Ukraine is a very multi-ethnic society. We have this very strong idea of the uh, civic nation. And it's true, Ukrainians, they are more conservative, you know, they are more prone to the language, maybe religion, you know, there are always, and the part of the society is, let's say, more urban and liberal and pluralistic. So this discussion and the debate in Ukrainian society is not around the uh, language lines or ethnic lines. It would be usual conservative and liberals, uh, smaller towns and uh, it's true that your language will matter more or, or things like that or identity parts will matter more. But never mind the people who like uh, have a different views or and, and more liberal and care less about uh, identity but care about social issue that they are pro-russian could be even more here into the lives to the uh you know to democracy uh and they just believing with some fictional idea of ukraine what is interesting and that as the as about less about those things you know as critical about the kremlin it maybe was but they are, you know, now the, the, the angriest, but unfortunately, they are also the biggest victims. You know, like those old ladies who watched Russian television, they were not active supporters of Putin, you know, like they would still sit in their flats, but they are the ones who are uh, targeted the first because they live in the suburban areas. They are the ones who, you know, suffer the most because they're less mobile, they less, as you know, like the poor people, the elderly, for them, it's the, the, the most difficult to survive in these circumstances. So they are targeted the first. Uh, so in this regard, uh, um, you, you know, like the resistance is stronger, especially in this, 
you know, like towns closer to Russia because the fight is happening there. And they've seen uh, it all with their eyes. But something to add and maybe develop with your question further. What I, was interesting for me, when I ask the people, you know, like ordinary people, common people, like not political activists, not journalists, I really prefer a lot to talk to these common people on the ground. How do they see the peace? And what do they mean by peace? What makes them angry? They really strongly, they wouldn't speak democracy, but they would speak like, it's our right to elect whom we want. We hate when somebody tells us how to live. We hate when somebody wants, like some Putin decides, you know, um, what my life should be, what the language I should talk, what, you know, it's my choice. So if even if they do not describe it as a democracy or the elections, it's they very clearly explained. So for, for them would be the peace, it would be the place where they can elect the president they want and nobody in Moscow would tell them what to do. Um, so by their kind of motivation is really also that feeling of sovereignty, the feeling of freedom, it's very strong in, in common Ukrainians because it's exactly like how we used to do, how we used to live. It's just really like really something very important for the people of, across a political spectrum. Thank you very much. I have more questions, but let me open the floor if you don't mind to my colleagues, and then if there's time, I will have uh, a couple of more questions. Uh, anybody here? Hi. Yes, hi, this is uh, this is Val, I'm the, I'm the director here. So thanks again for um, for meeting with us and uh, for your time today. And, and again, for being such an inspirational example to uh, to really the world uh, as this all this unfolds. Um, I just have a very practical question um, about aid. Uh, is any humanitarian aid making it through to to you, the citizens that, that need it most? Uh, so um, let me put it this way. Um, generally, the aid is definitely necessary. You know, like there is no discussion about that. The problem is not really the lack in some places, like in the most of the country. It's really also because, you know, some things are just not yet delivered. Um, so you basically can't find the things the shops are open but but you know it's a logistical issue it's not really that you know like something disappeared uh, also some of the cities are prepared in case they would be besieged you know and they need to kind of supply it you know and the shops won't will, don't work not because you know we don't have food or something but because there is a curfew there is no public transportation the normal routes are not really working However, there are a number of towns which are under Russian control or under the Russian siege, like the Mariupol. And there, the aid is not allowed. There are very complicated uh, negotiations uh, uh, with the, some intermediary, with the Red Cross and the others. And we do know that there is no rated in which it would really in danger for be allowed to get up take to pick up some um, humanitarian aid uh, like in Mariupol uh, where um, so 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 really those negotiations are there the convoys are stalling so it's not really the lack of it but where the, the aid is there where, where is it where whether is the uh, Ukrainian government under control which is the most of the places it's all okay, you know, like people 
cantilever things, you know, like from the western part of the country, from other towns. It's it's a network. The government is dealing with as the civilian population volunteer. Uh, the problem is exactly with those towns which are not under Ukrainian control at the moment. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Major. I'm Ian Brown. I'm the one who was reaching out to you via the email. So again, we're very grateful for your time. And uh, um, I guess one thing I was thinking of is, you know, given what you have covered as a correspondent over there, um, you know, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of stories and some sort of common narratives coming out. But what are some things that you've seen that have not been extensively reported on or shared that you think uh, wider audiences should be aware of? So, so, so look, a couple of things, probably some points. Uh, in some cases, it's like more about the stories which I'm told. Uh, that is a difficult uh, So now we do have a number of towns under the Russian uh, occupation. The people are still resilient there. They're going to the protest. What's happening now is that they really are targeting the people like that. In, apart from the soldiers, they are bringing all these kind of riot police there. So in the town of Kherson, there was a uh, you know um, tear gas used. People were shelled who went to. In the beginning, there were just Russian troops. So, for instance, there were Ukrainians which were outnumbering, uh, you know, so they would kind of sing Ukrainian anthem and, you know, protest. Uh, and then they are bringing way more people who actually physically uh, uh, crash those uh, protests. Uh, also, in a lot of places, we just do not have so far information because the problem that in some of those towns which are Russians uh, managed to occupy, they usually cut down the uh, electricity, the, 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 the mobile connection, and they don't let people out. They do not let people out. So we, we kind of still lacking the information, but from some of the resources, we understand that there is a, in, in the towns which are occupied, it's a targeted uh, you know, civilians are really targeted. But uh, that's the reason to explain why, for instance, now there are some talks about negotiation or something, why Ukrainian cities or anybody isn't ready to surrender. Because what's happening in the towns under the occupation, you know, the abduction, the um, disappearance of the people, that's the future of it. Uh, what is also probably not still understood, uh, and that's where I'm coming from, uh, my colleague, it wasn't me, but I, I, the closest colleague of mine, just recently really talked to quite a lot of people in, uh, in Mariupol. So really, the strategy of Russia, it's something which makes me scared, because indeed it was confirmed that in the beginning they uh, shot at the power grid station. Then they destroyed the stores. Then they destroyed the firefighters brigade and the emergency services. So if the town is shelled, there is nobody to come and um, you know stop the fire there. And it's made with the reason that the town should surrender because the humanitarian loss is so big that in the end the Ukrainian government would be uh, evacuated. Uh, you know, would need to surrender, for instance, which technically is like a real hostage taking of the whole towns. And can you imagine it's 300,000 people? So this strategy of deliberate destruction of the uh, infrastructure of the cities, 
which they are man managing to capture, probably because the cities are too far away and Ukraine, you know, like it's fighting, but the country is so big that still resources are limited. Uh, and uh, especially if in, in a town like Mariupol, the navy is shelling the town from the sea, the, the planes are coming from, you know, the aviation is coming and there is no way to put the air defense there. So this, you know, strategy, like in, in, even in a military term, like to describe this as a strategy um, to make Ukraine surrender, that's something to highlight. And the point is that like many people say, what what should we do? You know, because Russia would use some other force. The point for us is that we think that the, what all, apart from the nuclear power, uh, nuclear arms, they actually using already the worst of it. You know, like they really already using like quite a heavy weapon. So you know, like the point, the question here is like. Why everybody waits? What what worse could be uh, used? Okay, there are some maybe special um, weaponry, but it's still it, it's 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 already used. Uh, so you know what we are afraid of. What what are the things we do not want Russia to? Uh, what are the things uh, we are concerned that we want to hold Russia if they already using this strategy, which quite scary and which we understand could be used in the other towns if they, you know, I mean, move further. It's just a matter of time for them to move to another town to use this type of strategy. Great, thank you. And actually, if I could just one kind of follow up talking about, you know, what we can sort of glean from their strategy. You know, you just mentioned, and I know we've all seen very deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure, you know, both sort of basic necessities of life, like you said, like, you know, food, electricity, but also targeting first responders to make just make the situation more miserable. But it, I mean, what do you what do you see as the end game? Because if, if the end game is to eventually absorb Ukraine, you know, in some fashion, one would think they would kind of want that stuff. But it doesn't. You know, they're they're destroying the very things they would need, arguably to. Uh, to but I think the point is really to destroy. You know, like they don't care very much. You know, like that. It's not really that they want to invade and kind of control but punish and maybe don't care what okay put some puppet you know put somebody you know in the part of the territory but admit ukraine to you know to surrender at some terms they want to do in the capacity they can manage so that that's that's really looking like that that, that it's not the strategy of the invasion when they think that because they understood that people would resist. So it's not really that they want to preserve preserve something for them. I mean, there would be probably some end game for them when they understand that's enough for Ukraine, I don't know, like be humiliated or punished. Uh, it sounds like now, uh, to be honest, it's like from the political perspective, from the strategic perspective, from the leadership perspective, it, it, it doesn't make sense for Russia. But but to be honest, everything which has been done by this moment doesn't really make sense for Russia. You know, like it, it doesn't make better for Russia. It really doesn't improve anything there. It destroys Russia itself. So I, I do feel that some of the red lines crossed and they're ready to, you know, like, so what? I mean, you know, like destroying a number of towns. Okay, I mean, but if it makes Ukraine to surrender, let's do that. Great, thank you very much. I mean, again, uh, look, taking that, there are two informations that we hear in the open media, and I just wanted to see uh, 
your reaction from your own observations or your colleagues. One is that there's, uh, you talked about disappearance, but information that the past today mainly here that uh, large numbers of Ukrainians have actually been taken by force to Russia. Uh, and, and again, as a historian, when I think of that, I, I, I you know, his, the history is that Ukrainians were taken to Siberia a long time ago. So is this, you, again, I don't want to create a situation if that doesn't exist, but are they taking large numbers of people uh, out to Russia, wherever they are taking? That's one and two. Uh, look. Go ahead, please. Go, go ahead with that, I'll, I'll come back. Uh, so Okay, so I think that it's really, um, you know, it's it's large, uh, but just because the towns are big, I do think it's a bit different. It's not really they are taking from somewhere. However, of course, the reminiscence in the Ukrainian mind would be not really to Siberia, but the how people were taken by Germans during the World War II. That's kind of the comparison which is here. Uh, but I think that they are taken to Crimea and to Russia to show exactly that there is a limited amount of people which has been evacuated that Russia has managed to evacuate those people and then they can destroy those town uh, because you know like they still need to explain something to the local audience so they take these people to show that you know like see we are not destroying Mariupol we're taking we are evacuating some people but that's give them the pretext to kind of uh, target those towns even more Okay, thank you. The second question also has to do with the media that we hear, and, and because I, you know, deal with the Middle East, uh, all these reports that are coming out of Syrians and others that Putin has invited, are they having an effect? Are they there, or or so much of that is propaganda and so much reality? Uh, I do not know about Syrians. Chechens are definitely here. That's really no doubt. You know, like that's that's had been seen. That's had been confirmed. Uh, so we haven't seen that, uh, to be honest. Uh, uh, but we also do not really understand how much of the Russian troops were, you know, like there are figures of, of, of the casualties, of the deaths. Uh, and we also have the confirmation of some high profile generals being, you know, killed in Ukraine by the Ukrainian troops. Uh, but we feel that it could be, you know, like the, the, the people could be more. If it's um, if it's if they would think that they would need more more force, they might bring the people. Um, but I haven't heard and like cannot confirm that uh, so far. They still have quite a lot of their own people. I think this would be my last question, and this is more speculative. Uh, you know, you and I have talked several times, and I I, I want you to. And this is your country. This is not a subject which which we used to talk about, which were more outside of it. Uh, how do you see the near future next month? At uh, the best of scenarios. So, um, you know, I think that, that anywhere I come uh, to the any kind of group of people, the Ukrainians are the biggest optimists. Um, I would answer it in a bit different way. What the Ukrainians are a bit surprised. It's like how to convey this message. Uh, we understand all about the nuclear, you know, uh, nuclear arms. But however, from the, any other military point of view, it's kind of clear that if Ukraine has more arms, better air defense, it's actually capable to defend itself and that Russia is not exactly as mighty. So people do not understand why 
anybody is so afraid to engage with Russia because it's already clear that it's Russia could be defeated, of course, if we take aside the nuclear uh, nuclear arms. Uh, and that, you know, like enough of javelins, stingers, but first of all, air defense actually would make Ukraine capable to defend because still, you know, it's not just about determination, uh, but it, it really is. It works. Uh, that would be absolute speculation to understand how it's the negative scenario. It, 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 speak about it first because I didn't want it to be the most probable. It's really these tactics of using heavier weapon, destroying more towns, heavier weapon, destroying more towns, and like having a stronger resistance from Ukraine. Uh, so when the final destruction would be even, even, even bigger. Uh, the uh, the positive, let's say, is more or less proving to Russia that Ukraine is unconquerable. You know, like to the extent that there is some level of agreement when they do understand it's unconquerable and the damage to the Russian economy and to the Russian state uh is is really like so big that they cannot go on and there should be some real negotiation what's happening now it's very far i think it's 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 we're months ahead away from any like reasonable moment when there would be kind of negotiations because russia wants to negotiate when ukraine is in its lowest point and ukraine is not in this condition russia won't negotiate unless they understand that Ukrainians are really like in a very, very, very bad shape. So they would do as much as possible damage uh, to make Ukraine to this stage. Now it's all just ultimatums. It's quite a fictional uh, negotiations. Uh, but uh, the hope is still that, um, I guess, like this, uh, this a, a clear military support in fact, do works, and in the in in fact, like the sanctions, they are good. That things are good, but in the end, you know, you defend the city with the uh, stopping the Russian tanks. You defend the uh, city with the air defense. That is the hardest. That's something Ukraine. It's working, by the way. You know, like it, it it's still there. Kiev is largely okay now. Kiev is okay largely now actually because air defense works here. It's not because they don't care about Kiev and don't shell here, but they won't do that in Kharkiv, which is too close to the Russian border. Uh, they can't do that. And there are also, you know, they can't protect all the, all the towns. How it should be sorted out, I really don't know. Uh, still too many of the Ukrainian males are not in the army. Still the lines to get... Uh, uh, to get, uh, you know, enrolled, uh, they're still lines and many people are not really even, even, even uh, join the military. But of course, the economy, you know, isn't really working. Nothing is really working. We just like Ukraine would rely on the international support. Uh, but to be honest, which actually can, you know, back up another town, another town. Uh, that would that's something which gives Ukraine more time. So uh, I can't say that the time is on the Ukrainian side, uh, but the time is also not in the Russian uh, side, to be honest. Thank you. I, I, I'm passing uh, 
now the floor to my colleagues, but remember the first email I sent you, I said, you know, that your enemy is not as strong as people think. And I still stick with that. And uh, I, I will pass on. Uh, good evening. Uh, this is a Lieutenant Colonel Curtis Kobach. Thank you very much for being with us. Um, to, to pull apart something you were mentioning earlier was a question I had, which was, um, what are the aspects of, uh, of culture, of Ukrainian culture, that are really providing strength right now? You talked uh, about national power, uh, or rather national identity uh, as a democracy as being a key strength. But are there any other um, unique aspects of Ukrainian culture that are really bolstering uh, and that are hard to suppress and providing strength to the people that are there now? Um, so, yeah, I probably can tell, tell it now. Uh, Ukrainians are really incredibly freedom loving, you know, like it's really like the core value, like people hate to be told what they should be like by anybody, you know, like really, it's like they have this rebellion in, in everybody. And though it's always was thought that in the Soviet Union, you know, like people are uh, like not like that, Ukrainians were kind of still like that. Ukrainians has oddly not a uh, very strong trust to the authorities, the Ukrainian weakness. Oddly enough, today the trust is kind of uh, incredible and unprecedented. Uh, but Ukrainians also can very self-organize very fast in extreme, um, in extreme circumstances. So it's like the resilience and the resilience is very strong and oddly enough, we just really discussed it like in the first day of the war. Uh, there is some feeling of fatum, you know, like of the fate in Ukrainian minds. But the, the difference with this fate is that in Ukrainian mind, the fate in the end, the, the good will, will uh, uh, should uh, fight the evil. So like there is a fatalism, which is kind of doomed when people think like we, nothing depends on us. You know, like the world will end. And I do think it's unfortunately with the Russian society, they just didn't have a positive role models of the, you know, like doing something, resisting and, and reaching something. Ukrainians has this resistance mode and this idea that in the end, the good should fight the evil. I don't know, it's maybe in, in a way naive. Uh, but also the, the, so empowerment is there that like, you know, I care about myself. I, I mean, I don't care what's happening somewhere, uh, but if I can do something, I will do something, uh, which is really makes it very different and which totally, again, the Russians, the Russian government never understood. Uh, so I do think that's something where, where, uh, which really, uh, all together works. I mean, Ukrainians could be very chaotic at the same time. So, for instance, we are not even in the war. We are not afraid of the military dictatorship, you know, like even anywhere, um, you, you know, uh, so people would still take the decision on the local level. But that's probably they wouldn't afraid of the authority. That's maybe not the perfect thing, you know, when the there is an army and the control and command. But if you really speak about this scale and the war at every village or town, I do think that it's it's in the end, the idea that the people in this neighborhood, in this village would take care about their village on their own and won't wait till somebody would tell them what to do. And with this, I think that gives also us hope that in the end, it's very hard to, to uh, invade this kind of country where the, the response is this time. Thank you. 
I'm just very curious, uh, in, in, in some of the uh, readings that I've been doing, uh, you hear about uh, uh, fighters coming in, uh, foreign fighters to come in uh, and help Ukraine, whether that's, I think I've heard some Canadians, even some Americans and, and other kind of foreign fighters to come in and assist. So can you shed light on how uh, any uh, significant impact that is having on, on everything on the ground. And the other thing that I'm curious on is numbers wise, uh, I think Russia doesn't really convey what truth is in, in terms of their casualties and people injured. Uh, just just very curious uh, what, what your perspective is on, on that. So um, on the first, as the Ukrainian journalist, we can we didn't manage to find really them. Like really, we didn't manage to find where are those foreign fighters. So they are really a super marginal force. Uh, we knew that there were some trainings, uh, but they are definitely not significant. And to be honest, I think that those limited amount of people who came were not really uh, expecting what is here. What I was told by some of my colleagues from and the colleagues, but uh, you know, uh, friends at law enforcement that they probably were expecting kind of Iraq-style street fights, but it's not really here like that. It's artillery shelling, you know, like it's air defense, it's like air bombs, air strikes, and the kind of heavy tank battles. It's not where foreign fighters are, to be honest. This is kind of warfare we have now. It's not a street fight somewhere. And I don't think that anybody coming from the volunteer is really capable to do that or really supposed to do that. But honestly, we were trying to find where they are. We we, we, we didn't make it. And the second, please remind me. Yeah, yeah, something else. Oh, casualties. Uh, so look, I, of course, would say that probably there are more than, um, you know, like the Ukraine claims that there are 13 southern Russian troops killed. I probably would be cautious about that figure. However, we're definitely speaking about few thousands. We can reconfirm that, you know, uh, that up to, um, for instance, we know that there are up to 500 uh, prisoners of war, the Russian prisoners of war. It could be confirmed with the names. There are probably way more of them. But like that, probably that might give you know an amount. So if you, Ukraine has managed to capture half a thousand of those people, there definitely could be more casualties because more people die in those battles rather than than they are captured. They are not given up. They are not surrendering. Uh, on the Ukrainian side, we do not have a figure of the uh, casualties, uh, neither from military side. The UN provides the the, the figure a bit below than one. Uh, 1,000 uh, people who passed away. I do believe it's quite a small figure because talking from one town to another, I know just in the bigger towns, there would be 300 there, you know, something, you, you know, so it could be a bigger figure. And it would it could be beyond the thousand of the Ukrainian soldiers who killed because, uh, yeah, th those figures are not public. But we do know that in that place there was, for instance, attack, especially we have the cases when the air raid was done on the garrison and the people were sleeping and there were 70 people uh, died on one occasion in one town. And in another town there were 
50 cadets. You know, we, we, I'm, I'm speaking about, about like soldiers who were Ukrainian soldiers who were just sleeping in their garrison and they're mainly, you know, these kind of cadets, not really like the military. The military don't sleep in these facilities. Uh, but the Ukrainian claims that there are 13,000 of Russians killed. At some point, just to clarify, when we wanted, it's impossible to identify uh, independently, but such organization like Bellingcat and some other investigative journalists, they were trying to compare with the memory, which is destroyed and how much people it can uh, keep, in, it can have. So they were more or less corresponding that at least when the Ukrainian government claimed there are 5,000, they said it's, I don't know how it's with 13,000, uh, but uh, I, I do think that uh, the, the figures like at least 5,000, they're definitely reasonable. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you again for taking the time to speak to us. Uh, my question was regarding what seems to be the perception of Ukrainians that you've interacted with regarding the international support that Ukraine has been receiving. You know, President Zelensky has been very active in lobbying the international community for more support and, and the type of support that's being requested has also at times been very direct in chiding countries for not providing adequate support or be willing to support. What seems to be the view on that among the, uh, the people and the places that you've been traveling to? So Ukrainians are grateful for the support. They know that it's maybe unprecedented. Uh, and they are grateful to the United States, to UK, especially to the countries who provided the military aid because it's why Ukraine is able to fight, you know, like without javelins and low other things, you know, like they won't be able at all to fight. That's quite clear. Uh, however, at this stage after the months, I do think that there are some, not the high expectation, but because it's such a deliberate uh, civilian casualties, I think the Ukrainians might be a bit more disappointed with the international organizations and institutions. You know, like UN, can, the UN can do anything. All these international organizations which are existing, the OEC, Council of Europe, you know, like they really cannot help. Uh, you know, they can provide uh, uh, financial support, the support for the, all the sanctions against Russia, the Western companies pulling out of Russia. It, it's it's really greeted, you know, very well. And the financial support is very important. But I do think that, that, that on the human level, people just don't understand why it could be more in military way. They do understand that. The, they could have feel a bit like, okay, I mean, like, we understand that NATO won't be here fighting, but the individual na nations, what are they afraid of? If they would help, we feel like we would, we would uh, um, pursue and we would regain something. And it is not because we are, you know, like Ukraine fighting and that's why we want to support, but it's really about like saving lives. We don't see any other way to save lives. Uh, there is some uh, probably disappointment with organizations like NATO. You know, I think like uh, we understand that there was a lot of discussion about the uh, uh, prior to that, that Russia wanted Ukraine, the West kind of say that Ukraine would be neutral. Uh, but the point is that people don't understand like, okay, you know, like why do we have all these alliances if they cannot contain this 
this country because uh, we understand that it's not an obligation to defend Ukraine, but there are no real limitations. There is nothing which forbid these countries to engage in, in, in some way to save the civilian lives. So they do feel a bit, and I, I do think that where, where is interesting moment now uh, that we started from that, the Ukrainians, they don't feel that they're fighting just for the, you know, their land, their families, their cities. They do feel like we fight because it cannot be the case that the sovereign country uh, can be attacked in this way, that the city could be taken hostages, that the civilians could be just uh, bombed. And if we agree on that, and that's just everybody is witnessing that, uh, is it really the world we want to have? Why all we, dis th then all those discussions about international order, security, uh, sounds quite, you know, um, hypocritical. So therefore, um, it's it's not really the 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 accusation, uh, but I do think that people think like we we fight here not just for us. We actually fight for the rules because and it's unfortunate that these are us who are doing that. Uh, and it would be absolutely normal and adequate if there would be more help, more support, because the reason for this war is something bigger than you know like just the. Uh, just Ukraine. However, of course, Putin wants to destroy Ukraine, but we understand it's really about the sovereignty of any country and also human lives. Doesn't matter which uh, you know nationalities they are. Oh, thank you. Uh, you mentioned in, in case of Kyiv uh, and air defense. A lot of military analysts uh, in the open source section are, are, are kind of surprised in a good way because uh, that. Russia has not been able to establish uh, control over the skies of Ukraine. Uh, from your words, I gather that the air defense is one of the reasons. But uh, is it just the air defense? And you know, we heard again that three is again. This is Russian news, so we don't know how much of it is true. Uh, three S three hundred batteries were hit. Uh, if they haven't hit them all the way now, in almost a month. Uh, is it is it is it that Ukraine has a, a much much bigger air defense system than the Russians thought? That's number one. And number two is it uh, that the Russians are not permitting aircraft deep into Ukrainian territory? Uh, again, if you don't want to reveal this or something, you know. But the question is, uh, it's surprising why you know that Russia still hasn't been able to. You said they had the maps. They knew Ukraine, of course, as part of the USSR is that they haven't been able to, to uh, establish air superiority. It's, and, and this also with this question, is Ukrainian Air Force still operational in Europe? If you, do you know anything about that? So Not first, no, uh, no, I mean, I can say, uh, I, first of all, yeah, I'm civilian. I'm not really the military reporter. So some things I just do not probably understand as well as you do. Um, so, like, uh, excuse me, excuse if I kind of would be mistaken. Uh, what I understand that they probably wanted to occupy it also from the ground. And they were thinking first about occupying the city, not really like first targeting the uh, targeting the military objects, first of all, and kind of come as if they are, uh, you know, like these liberators. Uh, so, in the first initial strategy, there was no task to really bomb the the cities to this extent. Uh, 
But as soon as they understand that their ground troops were hit, including with the uh, you know javelins and other things, they started to use this different strategy of bombing the civilian infrastructure. So it was like the change in the in the initial uh, strategy of Russia. Air defense in Ukraine is still operational, but it's damaged partially. Quite a lot of things are damaged. We know it. So the point is that they are using resources carefully. You know, like what I understand, they just try to use it when it's strategic. And that's why sometimes they don't use it and there would be some damage done. Because they're trying to, you know, like organize the resources to understand where it matters, in which town, in which situation, with which target. And, and also, has Ukrainian Air Force still operational? The Air Force itself? Yeah, yeah. So that's what I said. That like they are operational, but they are limiting themselves uh, to the very strategic, uh, you know, like objects or 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 fights. Uh, we have taken a lot of your time. I know it's late for you. You are super busy. Uh, I want to thank you uh, on behalf of the Krulak Center, Middle East Studies, ourselves, and. Uh, Personally, as a as someone who knows you, I thank you so much. I, I hope to see you in a free and uh, independent Ukraine very soon. I will come back, and, and we can we can discuss this in the past. Stay strong, stay steadfast. Again, uh, as as somebody who, from a personal perspective, I tell you, uh, in 1979 on Christmas Eve, when the Russians I mean showed up in Afghanistan, uh, Time magazine said that. Afghanistan is now Afghanistan SSR. I still have that copy. Uh, well, later on, there was no Soviet Union. So uh, stick around. I think if, if, if with the way you're going, and hopefully you get the aid that you, you need, uh, there are going to be some tearful days. But I think at the end of the day, uh, your country will come stronger. And, and uh, uh, I wish personally I could do anything, but. Uh, if there's anything I can do, you let me know. All right. uh, stay there. Thank okay. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All the yes. best. Thank you. Yeah, all the best. All the best. Thank you for your interest. Take care of yourself. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.